And welcome to another episode of Casting Views, the podcast that likes to take a topic each week and, as the name suggests, cast views. Although this week is part of my Who's Coming to Dinner series, and I'm really excited actually because I've got a new voice to the show making their debut appearance on Casting Views. I've got Jason from It's Not That Bad podcast. Hi, Jason. Hey, how's it going? I'm I am so stoked for this. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this because it's a new. It's a new sub-series I'm doing, so I've, I'm, I'm kind of, um, what's the word, not protective, but I kind of feel like a, a doting parent over it because it's something new I'm trying for this season. And yeah, always great to have new people come on for it. So before we get into it, though, tell us a bit about yourself, so who you are, kind of where you're from, and, and anyone who, who isn't aware of the podcast, what your podcast's all about. Okay, well, first of all, hi, everybody. I'm Jason. Uh, I am a Canadian podcaster and the host of two different podcasts. The first one, as you mentioned, uh, is It's Not That Bad. So on this show, we will take movies that are, as we like to call them, unfairly maligned. So our our, our uh, grading system is like, so long as it has a less than 60% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that we ever put any faith in what Rotten Tomatoes actually rates a film, but there's got to be a qualifier at some point. So an under 60% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, We joke around here that uh, if the tomato is green, the movie can be seen. So we'll take those films and try to find the good things to say about them. Because a lot of these movies are actually not... And it's going to sound really bad. They're not that bad. Uh, I, I recognize that's the name of the show. We're a little uh, didactic on that one. But there are times, though, when it's really, really tough. I'm not going to lie. That's we actually have our 100th episode uh, coming up. It's probably already going to be out by the time this this episode airs because uh, it's releasing in literally two days from the moment we're recording this. Uh, and we had to sit down and watch The Room and try to find the good things to say about that one. So, <laughs> whoo, that was a challenge. The other podcast is called There Can Only Be One. And this kind of taps into the other side of me because I'm also a musician and just a massive lover of music. So what we do on that show is we will take an artist's entire studio discography. No live albums, no best of. So you got to you know, put the stop in at some point, but all their studio albums and put together a best of list with two rules. The first one is that every album has to be represented. The second one is that you're only allowed to choose one song per album. So if you think about some of these artists, some of their albums are literally a best of in and of themselves. And you have to narrow it down to just one song. And in some cases you have an album where you'd skip the entire album and you still have to pick one song. So if an artist has 10 studio albums out, it's going to be a 10 song playlist. And we put that one out every other week because I'm a musician. I got to talk music every now and then. A couple of questions on each of those. And, and I guess the first one it would apply to both of them so how did you or what made you want to do a podcast on those two specific subjects I think they're both great um especially the film one because everyone's quite quick to critique a film or talk down about a film but like you said you're actually trying to take the film and see right can we get any any good goodness out of it 
Well, see, the thing I look at with films is that, you know, even in the roughest of films, there's always some kind of silver lining. And when you think about just how much work a lot of these people put onto these films, everything down from like the from from the main cast to the supporting cast to the director, the the composer, um, the set designers, like we have in past shows, you know, praised cinematographers and set design uh, as our MVPs of those movies. I, I, it's almost like one of those things where you want to defend everything that they do because there's a lot of hard work that goes into making a film. I personally, I'm a professional video editor, so I completely appreciate the amount of work that goes into any kind of production. Not that I've had a chance to cut any films. I'm not that lucky, but regardless of, um, you want to stand up for these people, right? It's got to be tough when a movie comes out that you have slaved over and put all your work in and only to have critics crap on it. That's, it's not right. I mean, yes, call out maybe plot holes here and there or single out things that maybe don't stand like, like bad CGI, right? You can't sit there and, you know, not see it. Also, you also, you have to put a lot of it into perspective, you know, an eighties attempt at special effects is maybe not going to hold up as well as say, special effects today but to the same token some of the acting today maybe doesn't hold up to today so there's a lot that you want to try and speak positively to because there's also a lot of that missing out there i think in the pot sphere you know and i'm guilty of this as well um i have crapped on certain things that just suck that happens but we do our best we do our best because we know that there's real people behind the cameras where there's real people making these shows and movies that we all whether we love them or we hate them we still appreciate them so this is kind of like my way to appreciate it out loud and and that's why i say there's always i don't think anyone sets out to make a terrible film or terrible album say and and like i said there's a lot of love and work that goes into it now the other thing I would say as well is, you know, and I think your current episode is Volcano, isn't it? Oh, I love that film. And this is it, right? I guess your list is going to have some that some films that you probably say to yourself, well, I actually like that film because the variation in between what somebody loves slash hates is, can be a fine line. It very much is. And, you know, some of my favorite films are nowhere near you know, the, their quote-unquote best films. You know, I, I often point to Sylvester Stallone's filmography, and most people are going to point to, you know, your Rockies or your Rambos. I freaking love Oscar. I think it's a phenomenally fun film and showcases a side of Sylvester Stallone that most people aren't used to, and it's really, really good. But it just never got the attention or proper proper look i think and it's one of those things where not everyone's going to love every film i get that and yes there are films that if ever they cross you know cross cross our plate and sit there and go ah gonna have to suffer through this meal um then yeah we're gonna call it out but we're still going to do our best i mean even in the worst of films and there's one that comes to mind uh pups alone it's we haven't done it 
for an episode of it's not that bad we probably never will do an episode on it for it's not that bad because it really is that bad a film i'm not gonna lie but there's still some aspects of it that you could you know with a good critical look find and sometimes too it's really just the perspective that you go into things you know like the number of times i've seen the film and and just kind of shake my head and go i'm not going to go and watch that it's not interesting to me and then it comes up as a movie for us to cover on the podcast and you're going why was i avoiding this film it's actually yeah you know kind of pleasant you know so you know our inclinations on what we are drawn to and what we like will sometimes influence whether we do actually watch it or not which is why i always let the guest pick the film and you know Whenever my wife is the is the the co-host, I will occasionally sit there and go, "Hun, maybe, maybe we can do a sci-fi film this 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 week. It'd be nice." Um, but more often than not, it's the guest that picks the film because I like being introduced to new things. And even if I've seen it already or not, it's nice to go in with a different perspective. And I hope that's something that our listeners actually take away. You know, they'll sit there and see the film that we're talking about and go, oh, I remember that being crap. And then you hear people positively talk about it, and it sometimes changes the way you think about it after the fact. So hopefully we're adding that new film enjoyment perspective out there. I think you're right. That that last thing you said, I know I've definitely, because I'm of an age, so I remember seeing films back in the 80s originally, and I was thinking I really didn't like that film, and I avoided it for years. But then sort of in recent years, I thought, oh, do you know what? let me give it another chance watch it and actually enjoyed it and and maybe it's that frame of mind you're in maybe it's that year maybe it's it came out with 10 20 other blockbusters that kind of overshadowed it but there's been a couple of instances do i want to um do i want to admit them oh go go for it i'm i'm a huge rocky fan but i remember for years not particularly liking it's funny i think it was both rocky 3 and rocky 5 now i think rocky 5 probably still is the worst one of, of the lot yeah but, but you know when i watched it i found the fun in it i found the I, I could watch it and say yeah do you know what it doesn't light a candle to the first two films sure but i can find that little bit of entertainment in it that's running through it yeah i mean rocky five is definitely the worst of them you know and you know, again you're grading on a curve on that but you know even something like rocky four it qualifies for the show but I remember when it came out and maybe it's the era that it was in. And also maybe because of the soundtrack as again, love my music. I was sold on Rocky four. And Rocky four. I'll always have a soft spot. I remember that's one of the first memories of seeing a film at the cinema for me, probably saw films before it, but I, I said, I've said it on a recent podcast, but yeah, the whole opening sequence where Apollo's coming out with all the fanfare, that's, that's just burned into my mind when I was watching it on the big screen. Yeah, sorry, because I could probably talk to you all night about these these subjects. Um, <laughs> the, the music one as well, I think that's a fascinating take because sometimes it's hard to narrow down an artist's catalogue to just 10 songs, let alone saying that you can only have one song from each album they've done. So, I mean, why would you do something as sadistic as that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I might be a masochist. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> the thing, though, is that in some of these cases... Um, when you think of artists, you're sometimes surprised at how many albums they do have out. Um, we're getting ready to put out our Counting Crows episode uh, this week. And I, beyond the first two, maybe three albums, um, that's kind of where my Counting Crows 
knowledge kind of ended. And when you realize there's five other studio albums, mm-hmm. and then you start to go into those deep dives and you discover some of those songs that you never had heard before because you just kind of dropped off the listing of that artist. One of my favorite artists of all time, and we just actually released that episode a little while ago, was was Candlebox. You know, band out of Seattle, came out 30 years ago. They're just now kind of on their last ever tour. They put out their last ever album. But most people really only know Candlebox from their first album. And... Yeah, I, and I hate to say this, are sometimes considered a one-hit wonder because really only one song gets played on the radio, which is a shame because some of their best albums are, like, later on in their career, phenomenal songwriting. Sometimes it's just the change of personnel that changes the sound of the band um, ever so much that the stuff that they put out blows you away. And unless you're a massive fan, you're not going to maybe know or hear any of those albums radio only plays certain songs off of certain discs and that's it that's their that's all they're going to touch but if you were to listen to some of these other albums you'd be like wow i'm really really like i was a fan now i'm now i'm deep diving into it so it's not just a discovery process for me but I, I like to think of it that it's a discovery process for the listener as well, especially, again, another one of those situations where the guest picks the artist. So they're going to come in really more often than not with a, a, a wider music knowledge of the artist than I am in most cases, unless, again, I'm a huge fan of the artist. Like, if we ever do an episode on Queensryche, and again, another Seattle band, um, I'm going to be right into it because I'm a massive fan, but... If we go into um, an artist that I'm maybe not as familiar with, only know maybe the hits kind of thing, only the radio plays, then it becomes a a bigger discovery process for me. And I absolutely love that because more music is is better all the time. I'm not one of those people who who sits there and go, I'm not going to listen to anything new. I'm constantly looking for new music to listen to because it just sparks the creativity. Yeah, and I know you recently, a really good choice from my perspective. Anyway, you've done Def Leppard recently as well, I think, haven't you? Oh, that was fun. And <laughs> I, I, the thing is with Def Leppard, again, there was another one of those situations where really after slang, I kind of fell by the wayside and became one of those, well, if the album comes out, maybe I'll hear something that they put on the radio or something like that. And But Def Leppard for me was actually one of my, favorite early concert memories because i remember seeing them on the adrenalized tour um going to see them in ottawa at the civic center and it was near the end of their of their north american leg of their tour and they actually filmed a video for i want to touch you off of that album at the show that i was at so i was like right on the rail as they were in the round so there they are up on stage and there's all these cameras going around so I actually, you know, because they put the video out from that concert, I have that memory forever of that show, which is really kind of cool. Definitely. And kind of last thing on this, because I do, I do love my music as well. I mean, I'm not an an expert, but always have done. And I've said on the pod again a few times and and friends, I've got back massively into vinyl. And one of the things I love about it, and, you know, one of the things I loved growing up as a kid, even with the CDs and, and et cetera, was you did tend to listen to albums more. 
now when you can buy a single or a couple of songs direct, you know, for a dollar or 99p over here, I just wonder, have we or have people fallen out of love with listening to entire albums? And and the thing with vinyl is, yeah, of course, you've got a choice. You can lift it up and, and move over. But you're getting to hear that body of work that the artist wanted you to hear again. I think maybe that's something that has, for a bit of time, we lost. I think for me, it's not. it wasn't the vinyl era. It was the cassette era. I always, always had my Walkman on me whenever I would go to school or go yeah. really anywhere. And But it killed your batteries if you tried to rewind or fast forward to get to the song again. So it was one of those things where you listen to the album, not just for listening sake, but also for battery sake. Your songs, actually, your, your batteries lasted longer. I think the concept of the album itself is starting to go. There is a wonderful band called Within Temptation from from on you know your side of the the pond there and I would love to to see them live one day. But over the last really about a year or two years they've been putting out nothing but singles and then eventually those singles are going to have a few extra songs added and they're going to release it as an album. Their reasoning behind it was that when you put out an album you know, it gets talked about for a few months and you do the album cycle and, you know, the touring, the tour, and then you get back into the studio, but you're really only in the conversation for about a month or two. This way, they've been in the conversation uh, for the better part of two years because these singles have continuously come out. So it's always something new. And if people start to realize that that's going to help continue to drive touring, then maybe the idea of the album is gone and singles are the way to go. Possibly. I mean, art, to use that umbrella term, is always changing, right? What we're doing now is going to be completely different to, to 30, 40 years' time. Um, but I kind of always love the idea of, yeah, an artist releasing an album, and then you'd get four to five singles, and then you'd get the B-sides on the singles. Because I remember some bands, the B-sides used to be better than the A-sides of singles, and, and you used to get collections like the um the compilation sorry of artist b-sides rather than you know the a-sides it's it's funny it's funny I, yeah i could probably talk to you about this all night but let's get on with the main design of the show tonight tell you what before we do that we're just going to hear from some friends and then i'll come straight back to you he's on the run from the law falsely accused of murdering his wait Oh, got my scripts mixed up here. Uh, here we go. This makes more sense. The Movie Wire Podcast with host Justin Henson. Hear Justin's movie verdict wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in to The Movie Wire today. Right. So, as I said, I could talk to you about films and music all night, but I've got you on here for a specific thing because I, I need you to host a dinner party for me. I have given you some guidelines, and what I'd like from you, Jason, is I would like a three-course meal, then for each of these courses, you're going to introduce a guest. Now, I'm going to be number one, so you can't get rid of me that easily. But what <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do is I'm trying to tailor these to the podcast. So for you, it'd be sort of actors, actresses, and I'd even uh, let you have a fictional movie character if you want, but you can only have three. <laughs> There'll be some other questions and some other themes I'll throw at you. Let's start with your starter, what you're going to have and why. I think, I think for each one, both the food and the, the guest, why you're picking those. Well, I'm going to start with the setting, if you will, because it's going to be a backyard party. 
it, it's gonna be like backyard barbecue party everyone out enjoying what little sun we have left as we get close to winter um so consider this the the swan song to summer if you will and the backyard party is going to start with a buffet you know fruits veggies dips like all light kind of stuff a little bit of everything for everybody uh by the way i was listening to your previous dinner party episode and the the, the guest on there and again uh, refresh my memory I, I cannot remember the podcast matt from decaying with the boys yeah that episode was making me extraordinarily thirsty because I, I as well, am a craft beer aficionado, maybe not so much as, you know, in Pittsburgh as it is to hear we, you know, to be very different kind of brews and whatnot, but I'm going to start everyone to drink with a grapefruit rattler. If you like that, because again, it's light, it's summery and it tastes really, really good. Uh, depends on the rattler that you get. And with a buffet style entree, it makes sense for the first guest to be kind of a buffet of talent, uh, not an actor, but a director. He's also a composer uh, and a brilliant musician and a brilliant writer as well. That's Robert Rodriguez. When you think about everything that he does with his films, whether you like the films or not, whether it be Desperado or Once Upon a Time in Mexico or the Spy Kids series or the Planet Terror side of the Grindhouse film that he did with Quentin Tarantino, he really does everything. The writing, the directing, like his, his Rebel Without a Crew book in looking at how to make films on a low budget. And the fact that he is a phenomenal guitarist like when you think about um, i didn't know that i didn't know that oh take a look at uh he's with a band named shingon um c-h-i-n-g-o-n and they did a song called magalena sarosa i apologize if i messed that up i'm just an idiot canadian in a basement with a microphone um but his guitar work on that is so good there's actually clips too when he was directing uh, an episode of the second season of the Mandalorian, where he's just sitting there noodling away on an acoustic guitar while the little animatronic Grogu is sitting beside him. He's constantly on set with a guitar. And that's kind of the way he, um, you know, mentally tries to picture out how a scene's going to play out. He'll sit there, he'll noodle away. Um, as a, like, I'm not a guitarist, I'm a bassist, um, you know, four strings only here. Um, so to be able to have someone who not just films his own stuff and writes his own stuff, but scores it as well. Like that is a level of talent. I wish I had to be able to tap into that kind of mindset would be wonderful. Just looking up his band as well. We're saying that, but yeah. And I'm so envious of the people who just seem to be talented in multi areas as well. You know? Oh yeah. It's, you know, you'd love to pick his brain. You'd love to work with him, but secretly you'd hate that he's really good at everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a great guest. I mean, in a sense of he covers so many bases there as well. And you, you can actually get him to play music through the night too. So right? or, or you I and mean, him could just jam, right? Oh, that that would be wonderful. Like if I just pull up my acoustic bass guitar and just jam along with him, that would be you're selling the evening already love it well there you go look robert if you are listening or if anyone listening knows robert let's make this happen um right (laughs) 
So you said, so yeah, kind of like a buffet style then. And what was that? A grapefruit rattler, did you say? A grapefruit rattler. So a rattler is basically a beer mixed in with a soda. So it's going to have a lower alcohol percentage, you know, sitting around that 25 to 3%. But it's light and sparkly and goes down really, really well during the summer. So if you're lo- if you're looking for something that's not heavy, you know, you're not going to yeah. get filled up by this, you know, during the the opening course. It's a, It's a great drink to kind of chill with. Yeah, and like you said, it's a nice opener. And sometimes, yeah, it's nice to have a refreshing drink. Sometimes it's just one of those lighter, yeah, kind of more refreshing drinks rather than a big heavy ale or lager or or, or a beer like that, isn't it? Especially, yeah, to get, get the proceedings kicked off with. Oh, considering some of the beers that I love, then yes, because I prefer them more on the heavier and hoppier side. So okay. this is a, a, it's a nice way to start, though. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so what are we looking at for the main course then? Okay, so for the main course, we're looking at a very, very uh, hearty meal here. So we're talking like thick strip loin steaks on the barbecue, completely basted in a hickory smoked barbecue sauce while it's on the grill, garlic whipped potatoes with imperial sharp cheddar thrown into the mix and melt melted into it some good corn on the cob you're going to pair that of course with uh with a, a heartier brew so probably like a barrel aged beer whether it be aged in a rye barrel or a scotch barrel some, something that again goes with the smoke that's on the steaks and again i'm just getting hungry now just thinking about it oh, no, it's always a problem when i do this episode right your stomach is probably growling at the end sitting there going oh now i love that time recording i've only just finished eating my main meal now i'm hungry all over again <laughs> that's the issue I've <laughs> but you know so you've got like a very very big meal and i had someone written down and i'm slightly going to switch it on the side here but it's still related to the actor in question but i'm going to go with the fictional character in this case and i'm going to go with the doctor of course David Tennant is one of my favorite actors of all time. And I remember growing up and watching Doctor Who, uh, even in Canada, during the Tom Baker years. Uh, I, th- that was my first Doctor. But when it comes to, you know, who, you know, which Doctor do I put up top, it's got to be David Tennant. You know, Matt Smith and Tom Baker probably sit at like, you know, 2 and 2A two for me. Um, I actually thought Jodie Whittaker was a great doctor, even though the stories weren't as good as the Moffat and the um, Russell T. Davies era. But it would be fascinating to sit down with someone like the doctor and just to get a, a grand perspective on not just everything, but every when at the same yeah. time. By the way, if, have you ever had a chance to listen to David Tennant's podcast? No, I haven't actually, no. Uh, it was... This was one of the first podcasts I actually started to listen to. He started it during the pandemic, and it's, it's you know, it, it's a thought-provoking title. It's called David Tennant Does a Podcast. And, <laughs> you know, you don't really have to think too much about it, but he just sat down with people that he starred with or people that he's worked with or, you know, or other, in some cases, people he's, you know, admired their work. He's a phenomenal interviewer. And the, the the podcasts are great listens. He's done episodes with, of course, Billy Piper, Jody Whitaker, Michael Sheen, if you've watched Staged, uh, which is the greatest production to ever come out of the pandemic. Um, Kristen Ritter, who we started with, and Jessica Jones. It's a great podcast. So you have to think that if it's 
the 10th doctor that you're having over for dinner, um, you're going to get some great stories and great, some great conversation out of that. Do you know what? I wasn't expecting David Tennant to come up as a guest, um, especially sort of following on from Robert Rodriguez. It's funny because for me, I, and I know some people will probably uh, start throwing their, their listening device across the room. I was never a Doctor Who fan. I never particularly was into it. But then I kind of started watching from, yeah, like the reboot or the restart of it with Christopher Eccleston. And I, and I enjoyed that. But yeah, those David Tennant years, I mean, he, he just portrayed the character so well with that was when I think for once you know like I said I don't know about the 60s or, or the 70s but there was emotion in there as well wasn't it, it wasn't just uh, like a sci-fi program with funny looking aliens it, there was kind of like the way he portrayed the character and the meaning and even over here he's done a couple of quite hard-hitting dramas as well I don't know if you've got the opportunity to check some of those out oh yeah I mean well, Broadchurch was such a phenomenal show, like absolutely. You know, and then of course he did the American version, Grace uh, Grace Point, and it's just not. He plays the exact same character in the exact same story with a bad American accent, and it's it's if you've watched Broadchurch, it's very different. I'm sure if you if you never knew Broadchurch existed, you'd be like, oh hey, David Tennant, cool, no problem. But just watch. Watch, always watch the British version. The British version is always better. But I mean, he, to me, has played one of the best on-screen Marvel villains of all time when he was in the first season of Jessica Jones as Kilgrave. Yes. It, yeah. He made a villain that you actually thought was in the right. You understood why he was so mad and so villainous, I guess. You know, like you felt for him. And mm. that's a remarkable feat when you're playing the bad guy in a superhero show, right? You, you think about, you know, you understand um, Hela in Thor Ragnarok, you know, be, being cast away by her father. You understand Thanos's reasoning, even if you don't accept his methods, Kilgrave, you see exactly why he's so scarred. And when you have that ability, you're going to, lash out because you were hurt so young and you understand it i completely forgot he was in that and he is one of those actors that because and i don't mean this in a negative way but when you look at him he's he's kind of an unassuming person isn't he he's you know he, he can blend in he seems quite sort of quiet he can sort of slip into the background but he he seems to be able to play the fun jovial character but then you click your fingers and he, like you said, you believe him as truly villainous. And yes, yeah, it's, it's, it takes, not not every actor can act, make you believe either extreme the way I think he can. Well, I think too with Doctor Who, he came into it as a fan. Um, he's had gone on record in saying that, you know, when he was growing up, you know, he was a fan of the fifth Doctor, uh, Peter Davison, who, of course, now is his father-in-law. Um, but, <laughs> you know, so so he grew up as a fan of the series to begin with, and then got to expand on the character from there. And Peter Davison, I think was actually a great doctor in his own right, you know, coming out of the, the longest reign of being the doctor and out of the Tom Baker years, you know, that's gotta be tough, right? Cause Tom Baker, like most people will sit there and say, you know, thinking about the classic series or the classic era, Tom Baker is probably one of the first doctors that comes to mind. It was such an iconic look and an iconic performance. 
coming out of that, Peter Davidson had a, a tough, you know, a, a tough road to hoe because he's coming out of one of the more beloved doctors. And I think he did a very good job and just wasn't in long enough to really cement himself more in, into the role, you know, wearing celery on your lapel probably doesn't help that matters that much, but you know, Matt Smith was a Tom Baker fan. David Tennant was a Peter Davison fan. And you can see those inspirations in the way that they played the doctor as well. Because my, when I say my doctor, so my doctor when I grew up was Sylvester McCoy. Now, I don't know how he's looked at, but again, I think I never really clicked with with that character, that that doctor. And I think maybe that's why it kind of never got the interest to explore deeper into the show. I think as it went on, and I probably watched the, like I said, reboot for want of a better term of it, but when it relaunched a few years into it, when it was on Netflix, because what I get jealous of when I see other people in shows is the like the law that's around Doctor Who and all the, you know, all the background. And and I'm attracted to wanting to know the law of a program, but without necessarily having seen it. So I think that's what got me into watching it. I think I may have binged it too much. So I then did stop watching at the Peter Capaldi phase. Not saying again, he was bad, but I think I probably just binge too much so at some point i've set myself to task to go again and restart it and and kind of take it easy and and work my way through i think capaldi's era got off on the wrong foot and i think part of that is because they kept jenna coleman around and i realized that they did this with billy piper you know she crossed over from eccleston to tenant in tenant's first year uh and that was kind of like the 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 grace period like the, the the easing in with matt smith they started fresh right from the start new companions new everything but with jenna coleman again you're you're bringing over someone who spent a half a season with matt smith and then into like the two se- the first two seasons with capaldi but it was just a reminder of matt smith and that's part of the problem i think if she had left after the first season then capaldi would have had two years to you know really set his own kind of you know doctor companion relationship which is funny because Jenna Coleman is a good companion and she was wonderful with Matt Smith. And I think that's the problem. People liked her with Matt Smith more than they liked her with Peter Capaldi. Yeah, I can see that. Did you ever see the Sylvester McCoy version? Sylvester McCoy, I mean, I see it every now and then because, of course, they, they have the classic Doctor Who streaming on Plex and on Pluto TV and some of these like more fast uh, fast networks. Um I had kind of tuned out in and around the Peter Davison beginning of the Colin Baker era. Um, and Colin Baker is one of those more divisive Doctor Who. So by Sylvester McCoy, I had kind of already tuned out at that point. But I liked his quirkiness in playing the Doctor in watching some of those episodes back. And I think people look at him with a bit more of an accepting note at this point. And the fact that he's still doing a lot of audio work and, you know, for the... Uh, for the big finished productions and the audiobooks that they're still putting out. Um, it's great to see that every doctor remaining is still being embraced, regardless of how they were taken in during their initial run. Yeah. And uh, I haven't been since the whole pandemic, but I remember going to some of the comic cons here and yeah, the love that 
they all get any any of them get because they still turn up at the conventions and yeah it's great so i did see sylvester mccoy at one um saw jenna coleman and at one point just heard this massive cheer at some point i couldn't work out what is screaming and yeah so david tennant had just walked right past and he just seemed you know stopping say hello to everyone and and i think that's that's what i was going to say um on this because i, I want to find out what what i'm getting for dessert now because i'm all about the food it's amazing how this has endured so long i know it's not been ever present on tv year in year out since kind of like the 60s but it's just amazing how it's retained and captured the imagination all these generations later from that initial show where when you look back at it of course because how long ago it was you know how how we can laugh at the aliens that were supposed to be scary yeah that the fact that it still commands both sides of the atlantic as well i guess um such strong viewership and following now well i think too it's gotten to that point where it falls into that pantheon of properties that if they ever left tv like if they're on people are like oh okay, i'll watch it if it's on kind of thing but they don't they don't plan their days around it but if ever they were gone from tv their absence would be missed saturday night live kind of fits into that everyone has their cast very much like everyone has their doctor right and not everyone watches saturday night live for long you know maybe a good five six years they'll they'll hang with the cast and then they'll kind of drift away from it um, but if they were ever to take saturday night live off the air uh, people would raise a stink wrestling's the same way as well yeah. there's always going to be wrestling on tv and people have their eras whether it's the hogan era the undertaker era uh the the the, the attitude era whatever that case is they have their wrestling era but if wwe ever went off the air again people would lose their minds even if they don't watch it um star trek you know there was a long stretch where there was no new star trek coming out and then all of a sudden boom it's back and while it may not be your era of star trek people still appreciate that it's on tv so i think doctor who will be that way whether it's their doctor or not so long as it's still there it's almost like a comfort level it's like okay you know th there's saturday night live on on the weekends there's gonna be wrestling at some point and i can go and watch doctor who and everything is right with the world yeah and it's also got a great theme tune which even if you're not a fan you, you'll always know it. and it's got the cool hook of the the tardis you know that that funny thing of it being the police box where when you go in it's it's a huge ship now even as a self-confessed not a huge fan I was in London recently and there is a police box somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And you do stop and look at it because it's so iconic. The, the visual of that is so iconic with that show. So yeah, it helps that it's got those, those striking things and the hook of the regeneration. Yeah. You're going to get a new doctor every so many years and that just helps breathe new life into the show. Right? Yeah. I mean, if someone ever came out and said, we're never making another James Bond film again, even if you don't watch James Bond films, and I'm one of those people who doesn't go out of their way to watch them, people would lose their mind because yeah. it's it's a thing. You expect it, yeah. right? It's always going to make money, um, and you always want a James Bond film, or at least there's, there's an appetite for a James Bond film, uh, and people have their Bonds, you know, whether they're Sean Connery people or Roger Moore people or Timothy Dalton people. Uh, it doesn't matter. People have their Bonds. And there's always should be James Bond films being made because there's always a next generation. And 
you know, that's that's some franchises are just like that. Yeah. And just on that, when I say my James Bond, I, I saw um it was a living daylight. So that was Timothy Dalton, wasn't it, at the cinema? And again, that's an early memory. Mm-hmm. Now, those series of films aren't often mentioned a lot when talking about classic James Bond. But again, that was my James Bond. That was the one I saw on the big screen. And and I, I remember loving that film. Like you, I won't go out my way to see them now. Again, yeah, it's that staple, isn't it? Every couple of years, you need that big action film to come out, that big sort of blockbuster. But tell you what, let's hear what we're finishing the uh, the meal with and who with. Well, at this point, we're pretty we're pretty full from dinner, um, so we're just going to sit down with one of my favorite desserts of all time, the key lime pie. Okay. Um, probably going to pair it with a cup of coffee because at this point, we've already had the heavy beer and the light beer, so we we got to tone it down a little bit. But I think the third guest, and I had two written down here, so I'm going to go with one, and that's Kevin Feige. And really, we're just going to feed him as much key lime pie as we could possibly can so we can get all the Marvel spoilers. I think it's fascinating that Feige in in his long career, and you know, he's been involved in some of the you know pre-MCU films, like his name's on Electra. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's something he doesn't really, you know, mention much and put on the resume. But the way the approach that they had with the MCU really changed the way that franchises and filmmaking was was done. And it's it would be fascinating to sit there and be able to to just kind of tap into not just filmmaking, but grand vision filmmaking like he doesn't sit there and plan out films he plans out entire decades of of entertainment and that kind of a wide view is going to be fascinating to tap into yeah i mean there's no doubting that vision of creating this mcu and how that took it was a slow burn at the start but how he's built up such a fascinating interlinked and a world that has hooked comic book lovers uh, as well as non-comic book lovers you know it was just that that crafting of a of an well of a universe wasn't it and i think the other thing too is that you know whether you necessarily agree with it initially or not marvel casting has always been on point like the the actors that they get into those roles um really fits the mold of the comic book character like robert downey jr initially was it was a a risky choice for them when you consider you know where his career was at the time but really there was no other person in hollywood so perfect to play tony stark so because of the complexity of tony stark and you saw that just click chris evans prior to Captain America had, you know, had been in some films like Scott Pilgrim and, you know, of course, the Fantastic Four films. He was Johnny Storm, Um, but he tapped into something that was so perfect for Steve Rogers. You know, Elizabeth Olsen and Scarlett Chadwick Boseman, like no other actor could could touch that role like Chadwick Boseman brought it to life. Um, And even now, like, I know... She-Hulk isn't exactly the most revered property in in the MCU, you know, but bringing in Tatiana Maslany as Jennifer Walters 
was a bang on pick for, for all the work that she did in Orphan Black, you know, not just from an actor's perspective, but from a production perspective and how much, you know, work was needed to be done in order to be able to hit a lot of those marks and, you know, be able to to perform as She-Hulk and as Jennifer Walters. Like she had that down pat with Orphan Black. So they really nailed down the casting aspect of the MCU. And I think that's why the MCU is still to this day since 2008. So 15 years um, still so highly regarded because they nailed the casting every time. Yeah. And even to, to some of like the villains and the choices we have had Christian Bale, which I wouldn't have put into an not that I wouldn't have put into an MCU, but I wouldn't have seen him in an MCU film. And also Guy Pearce, you know, was in, was it Iron Man 2 or 3? I always forget which one. No, it was Iron Man 3. That's it. Even on, on the villain side of things, it's, yeah, there's been some interesting choices that have worked, I think. Oh, and Kate Blanchett as, as Hela? Yes, yeah. Was, I mean, that, that was just, you know, you, t- you take the scenery, you take the dialogue, and you make a buffet out of it. Um, when Christian Bale was announced for Thor, um, a lot of people were sitting there speculating that he was going to be Balder the Brave. And that's also kind of the fun with Marvel is the casting couching, if you will, like sitting there and try to guess who's going to be this character and who's going to be this character. And people are deep diving into comic lore and saying, they're saying, well, who would make the best actor for this and which version of this character would be the best to bring to the screen? You know, you think about Ant-Man, you know, is it the, the, the Henry Pym version or is it going to be the Scott Lang version? Yeah. That's the fun with comics. You know, there's such a rich, history of the character or the hero and which which version of that do you bring to the screen yeah and as you say even for ant-man so so paul rudd i wouldn't necessarily put him as a an mcu superhero but ant-man especially the first one it was one of my favorite films from the universe and yeah yeah he's just that charm he's got that charm to carry it hasn't he oh absolutely yeah i mean and that's the thing like you could have gone with uh a much more bubbly version of the wasp like you see maybe in some of the animated versions of the avengers but i think by pairing paul rudd with the, with an evangeline lately makes sense because then you don't have two comedy actors trying to hog the you know the funny you know yeah. you have a balance and it works well yeah yeah and 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 like i said you know i'm not i'm, I'm not gonna say i, I know every film but I don't think we've seen before that kind of intricate universe building up in a film. Maybe people in studios haven't ever given producers, et cetera, the time to do that. And maybe, you know, they saw it, what could be done here. But I remember watching the first Iron Man and the Captain America, not realizing or not ever considering that it was going to build up into this gargantuan four-phase film extravaganza that we're at the moment then all the, as, as you've alluded to all the tv shows we're seeing now is some going isn't it from that first film oh yeah no it's a we've come a long way since iron man one and i think too like with you know people not as enthused about phase four um i get it they worked so hard to get to end game you know like a 12 10 12 year journey to get to that point and then you have to feel like you're starting fresh. And I, I often tell people, don't compare Phase 4 to Infinity War. Compare Phase 4 to Phase 1. And that's, you're seeing where they're starting from again. And you have to do that. 
Yeah. No, no, you're right. It's got to give it time. And, and obviously there's a new generation of fans coming through as well. And, and as you said, I think for me, I think it's just the fact that, yeah, Infinity War, Endgame, just the perfect encapsulation of the perfect ending to everything that came before it that you almost think if they never made another marvel film again i'd be happy because you had that complete set of films from iron man through to that if they can keep it going and they can keep script writing up why not why not do more there's always new people that want to see see more so oh absolutely yeah and and that's the thing like you're going to have I think with Marvel, I think you're going to have people where it's like, okay, well, this is my phase. You know, as we were talking with like, but Doctor Who and James Bond, people are going to sit there and say, this was my era of Marvel. So long as they keep going like they are. But when you consider that Marvel and Star Wars really right now are what drive Disney Plus. And I think Disney recognizes that like Disney movies and, you know, Pixar aren't necessarily the selling point that they were but marvel and star wars are and that's what's driving the subscribe uh, the subscriptions to that like people wanting to watch more ahsoka and mandalorian and andor people wanting more marvel to continue that that storytelling you're going to have those two properties continuing to drive the content engine of that and then Disney proper, I think, is just going to be the buffer as well. Yeah. Well, it's like you said, it's, it's what, 15, 16, 17 years now. So you're going to have people who've got children now that are probably too young to have seen the original one. So they'll get into this one. And maybe phase one to three are going to be like the original Star Wars to, to some of the new generation when, when the uh, prequels then came out. Right. Another one, which was your trilogy, right? You know, the original, the prequel yeah. or the, you know, the JJ Abrams verse, right? Like again, you're going to have eras yeah, and yeah. that's for a franchise to be able to, to tent pull themselves like that, that that's saying something. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So no, another great, yeah. Great guest there at the end. So I'll recap after, but so We've had all the guests, we've eaten all the food, and I've, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've enjoyed the food as well. So uh, thank you for that. What I wanted to do is obviously through the night, we need some music and what better guests to ask about this. So initially I said a movie soundtrack. So what I'm going to do is mix it up. I'd like, if you have got movie soundtrack, have that. But then I also wouldn't mind one of your, there can be only one albums as well that you probably put on afterwards. So okay okay so let's start with the movie soundtrack here um it's gonna be considering all the sci-fi stuff that we have talked about so far this is gonna be a very oddball choice because it completely goes in the other direction but i'm gonna grab the soundtrack from the movie four rooms uh as directed okay. by tarantino rodriguez and two other directors the, the the band apart directors Four Rooms is one of those wonderful little anthology stories where everything happens in the same hotel in the same night. Tim Roth is like the one connecting thread between all four stories, and he's yeah. just wonderful in it. But the Four Rooms soundtrack, uh, done completely by a band called Combustible Edison, it's very almost jazz swing lounge, and I've always considered that album in itself to be perfect dinner music to begin with um it's light it's fun it's bubbly it's bouncy and some of the songs in there are just a straight bop and the funny thing is i remember having this cd when i was in college do, uh, 
taking broadcasting and using that music in a couple of different projects because it was so much fun and it was so different than your standard, you know, rock or stock music kind of, you know, soundtrack that you would put into projects. This was fun. And that soundtrack in itself, I think, is a character of the film as much as the actors are. Yeah, absolutely. I think music is so underestimated by a lot of people in what it adds to a film, especially if you can get the right music. That's what I think can often make you feel something as well as, you know, obviously if you've got a fantastic actor, that of course, but it's the music is such an understated piece of or medium when, when you're watching a film, I think. Mm, oh, absolutely. Think about it. More often than not, the moments that you're going to cry in a, th- in a movie or have the, you know, the, the hair raised on the back of your neck. Yeah, it's going to be the moment in the film, but more often than not, that moment is accented by the music that's in there. I mean, even when you think about horror films, the smart sound designers at the tense moments of the film will put a low frequency rumble into the soundtrack at a certain frequency. So it creates a level of unease in you until of course the jump scare. And then they kind of release the, uh, the, the low frequency rumble. That's just playing with the soundscape and messing with the audience. It, but it's the music that more often than not, you know, will strike that chord and will trigger that sympathetic response in you to either, um, be excited, be on your edge, um, or be emotional. Yeah, because we've all got those songs that as soon as you just hear the opening bars, you you regress 20, 30 years, right? And and music oh. has absolutely got that power. And 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 yeah, it's true what you're saying. Sometimes yeah, you can get obviously a really emotional piece of acting, but sometimes if it's a film you know and it's a sad bit of the film. You just need to hear the opening bars of a piece of music and you know what's coming. And it's that that hits you first, isn't it? Rather than sometimes the acting you're going to see. Oh, I mean, you think about, and I'm gonna, you're going to laugh at this reference here, but the old Incredible Hulk TV series, you know, yes, where yeah. Lou Ferrigno was the Hulk himself. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the, the, the show was, was what the show was, but everyone remembers like the end of every episode and, you know, uh, banner walking away and all of a sudden it's like Hulk is walking away um Transformers the movie like the the animated one um every kid my age remembers the moment that Optimus Prime dies and it's not just because of the moment it's the Vince DiCola soundtrack to that that dun 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 like oh dear god they're gonna kill optimus prime after they killed everybody else my toys are dead you know like but it's that soundtrack that really hit home and that moment and i think that moment alone maybe the first real time that i ever clued into the idea that music makes the emotion of the scene as much as the dialogue and the acting does absolutely so would you have to hand, because I know I've thrown this at you, a um, There Can Be Only One you would like to play? And I oh, guess what absolutely. I'm saying here is almost then, again, what's kind of your favorite band, I guess, I guess I'm saying here. But. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm telling you right now, I am going to go and get my uh, my hands on a copy of Candlebox's Disappearing in Airports album. And again, this is one of those situations where, you know, we talked about Candlebox earlier. And 1993 was their big year and the song Far Behind. And it was played everywhere. And that's still the song that that is played. 2017 
you know, so like 25 years, 24 years into their career. And all of a sudden they put out this album and it is front to back. One of the most amazing albums I've ever heard. And maybe this album's special to me because this was the tour that I first got to see Candlebox. They were, they were for the longest time on my bucket list of bands. And we drove from my wife and I from Toronto to Louisville, Kentucky. So we're talking like a 12 hour all day in the car drive yeah, yeah. to go see Candlebox in this small little club. And we were right front of the stage and the show was phenomenal and everything I wanted out of Candlebox and more. And then I still remember like after the show, um, we were outside the club and Kevin Martin, the singer comes out and, you know, comes to see a bunch of us that were that were waiting and so we actually got to meet uh and talk to kevin martin and we're like so when are you going to make your way up to canada right and he's like we could come to canada and you two might be the only people there and that blew me away because to me Candlebox is such a a, a great band why wouldn't they yeah. but you're getting a lot of that here now where bands are touring the u.s but they're not coming to canada because the, the the money isn't there to do it. And it's a shame because we're missing out on a lot of really, really good shows. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the, kind of the expense of putting on these these world tours, etc. I guess they do have to be quite tough, don't they? Or make some tough decisions, I should say. Well, when you consider, too, that the Canadian dollar is right now, it's about... I'd say about 75 to 78 cents to the American dollar, you know, so you're losing at best 20 cents to the dollar whenever you come up to Canada, you know, so while yes, your American dollars are going to buy more gas and make it a little bit easier to get across the take you're getting at the, at the, the venues isn't the, you know, 10 grand at the venue in Canada is not 10 grand at the venue in the States. So you have to sit there and think about, is it worth the trip up there and in some cases unfortunately it's not well if you're listening candle box again <laughs> bait your way up to canada you've got me thinking about that it is about yeah kind of location isn't it, it really is for but for, for, for depending on on the band so i mean sorry where did you say they're based or they're out of seattle seattle yeah. yeah so you know for them to go to a place like vancouver would make sense because that's literally just across the border because british columbia is just north of, of washington state you know but for them to make their way to toronto and unfortunately this is candlebox's last tour right. ever but right. they are currently on tour with three doors down and doing a couple of solo shows here and there and picking up a couple of festivals but after this tour that's it so the fact that I was able to say I got to see Candlebox three times since that 2017 tour, um, very happy to be able to say I've been able to do that and enjoyed every show. And really, they don't have to sit there and justify what they do to anyone. You know, they were a band worth traveling for. And I, I it goes back to the, my wife and I said something at the beginning of the pandemic. Go see the band before you can't see the band. Yeah. Because if if the pandemic taught us anything, you know, live music is could be one of the first things to go in any kind of stay home situation. And for some people, that's the thing that they miss the most. I mean, I know as a gigging musician, not playing shows was one of the things that, you know, kind of hit me the hardest at home. And 
that's also why I started podcasting because I needed some kind of creative outlet. I wasn't out playing shows. So all of a sudden, well, I start watching some bad movies. It's time to do something. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. Do you know what? Never a true word has been said. It's like, yeah, I was listening to some old radio shows and the presenter was saying that, you know, he wanted to start going and taking his kids to see some of the older acts because you just don't know what's going to be around the corner for them or for, or for you, you know. And 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 as you said, the pandemic has absolutely shown that we can't take anything for granted. And I think live music, well, live performances or even shows, I think once that opened up, people just couldn't wait to get back into theatres and venues, concert venues. See, now I, I went to see. I'm a huge Oasis fan and. Last year, I, I was able to see, I actually saw Liam Gallagher twice. I saw him at the Royal Albert Hall, but then at the Nebworth gig. And and just being there without trying to go, you know, get too deep into it. But it just felt like everyone there, it was just that release of the two years previously being sort of cooped up and, and going through what they went through. It was, It kind of just felt like just people being able to just let it all out again, you know? Well, I mean, even from a, because I'm in a cover band. And even from a small club perspective, you know, like some of those first shows coming into the pandemic were some of the best dancing crowds that we had had um, because people were so cooped up and because people didn't have a chance to go out and dance and party and sing and, and the likes. So like it was cathartic for them as much as it was cathartic for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just keeping an eye on the time. So I did want to throw a couple more things your way. We were having this backyard barbecue, you said, but if we had to move it into a restaurant or diner from the film or TV world, is there one that kind of strikes you? Oh, absolutely. Our rain plan is to go to the Starship Enterprise and we're going to have the party at 10 forward. <laughs> what do you think about it? A, is there any better view than on, you know, from out of a Starship window? But really, think about the food service as well. You can have anything you want digitally created for you to the exact specification that you want. There is no better food service that you have to think than on 10 forward. Cause I mean, if you want your tea, Earl Grey hot, then th there you have it, right? If you want your steak to that perfect cook, all you got to do is tell the computer what, what to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're going to have great ambiance. You're going to have a great view comfy chairs they look pretty comfy and food exactly the way you want it you, you thrown me again with that but I, I should expect that because you, you've kind of thrown me a few times but i wasn't expecting <laughs> this to start shipping um, but i'll take your reasoning absolutely i'll take your reasoning on that if you had to throw it as a themed dinner party a movie theme themed dinner party what would you have oh this one's gonna be fun um, you're, you're going to have to get rid of the dead people though. Uh, but we're going to have a clue party. When okay. you think about some of the more fun murder mystery type movies, clue was not just of a, a great ensemble cast. Um, but one of the first films to give you different endings to a film. And that was fascinating. Like for a film to sit there and say, no, no, you get this, you get this and you get this, which ending do you, do you, choose 
um, around the same time too, there was a, I remember on the movie networks, there was a program called murder in space and it starred Michael Ironside and it did the same thing. Uh, it was basically a sci-fi themed murder mystery and you had three different endings. Um, clue clearly the superior multiple ending, um, you know, process. And it kind of goes into that, you know, have you ever read those, uh, choose your own adventure books? Those were them. always fun. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And you're now starting to get into that again with like Netflix and creating these interactive yes. movies where yeah. you determine like, like uh, Black Mirror's, oh, was it uh, as Bandersnatch, I think yeah. it was? Yeah. yeah. Like, and uh, the, I think Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt had an interactive one. Like, that's a fascinating use of the technology for netflix to pull off and no one else has even tried it and i think it's brilliant um but clue's gonna be a fun murder mystery and yeah classic theme as well and um and just on your point there about what netflix is doing so i am doing another sub-series of black mirror reviews i've seen almost all of them but i never did do bandersnatch for whatever reason so i'm looking forward to me and my co-host seeing what we come to the the table with for that recording to see I, I mean i don't know how varying it can be if it's oh it's the same but that the character chooses that color car instead of that color but it'll be interesting I, i'm looking forward to seeing what we come to the table with in that and and like you said i don't know how difficult it is or, or financially but having uniquely personalized films i think is quite a niche and, and, and could be quite exciting well when you think about just the genrefication of a lot of different properties you know you're starting to get streaming services that cater to a very specific genre fan um it's going to get to the point and you, you you see it now too with spotify you know you're getting playlists made based on your personal choice yeah. algorithm so yeah. it's you know you're the dj if you will yeah. now they're starting to create you know to add ai into the mix and that and there have been a number of bands that i've you know whose music I've discovered just through that, right? Which is wonderful if you're looking for new music. But you're going to see, I think, and you already do, really, let's be honest, you know, collections curated based on your choices, which is good and also bad if you run a podcast where all you do is supposedly watch bad movies because your, you know, picks for you is going to be really, really interesting. Um, yeah. But... Who it's going to be? You chose yeah. the room. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I can't wait to hear that one. Yeah, no, but if it's going to be oh, individualized, Lord. yours is going to be. Yeah, this week's bad film is the is yeah the room, but as seen by Dan from Casting Views back in night. Yeah, because everyone's going to have a different one. So are they going to be logged and? Are we going to have stats on who got the worst ending, like we see on video games? Is like only certain people have amount of people have seen this ending and. Most people chose a bad. It'll probably say a lot about the people actually watching, won't it? Depending on the choices we make. Right. But I mean, we've been doing this with video games for a long time, right? Like the choices matter video games and whether your character ends up good or bad uh, depends on what you do. And I think you get a lot of that too with, um, with Netflix. Exactly. What are you going to make your character do? Mm -hmm. And you know, there's going to be the time where you sit there and you you make the right choice. And then there's going to sit, you know, times when you sit there and say, all right, chaos is going to ensue. Let's see what damage we can do. You know, and that's kind of fun. There's 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 a there's a, a fun control aspect to that. And it means being able to enjoy a property multiple times because some movies you watch it once and you're done. Yeah. Now 
you watch it, you know, six or seven times and it's going to be different every time. Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll need to move on because I want to ask you one final thing, but I, I guess the only thing with that is as long as it doesn't take you out the immersion of it, because you, you're going to have to stop the film and, and present a choice, I guess it's how they can make that work. But but like video game, you could probably lead up to it. You know, it's, you, you just need it. You don't need to have a defined, I want the character to say this. You just do good or bad or good, bad, middle. Do, do you know what I mean? And then you get the scene based on whether you do the good choice or the bad choice. Okay. It's been fascinating talking to you and, and all these choices. I did want to, I did say to you, because I do like to tailor it. If you did have a chance to think about if you could invite any celebrities from any walk of life, who would they have been? Okay, um, I'm going to throw the one that I had originally put in my three guests, but I'd kind of moved her out of that. But Tina Fey. Um, okay. I I personally love 30 Rock. I think it's one of the funniest sitcoms out there. And I think she's a wonderful writer. Um, and basically, I'd love to pick, again, another person who I'd love to pick their brain. Um, another writer that I would actually put in is Timothy Zahn. Um, for the longest time, uh, Star Wars fans were left holding nothing um, until, of course, The Force Awakens. So the expanded universe books were like a, a lifeline to Star Wars fans. And Timothy Zahn arguably wrote some of the best Star Wars <clears throat> at the time canon, not canon now, but he's still writing more Star Wars books. And if you've been watching the Ahsoka series and you all of a sudden the grand Emerald Thrawn has shown up as this big bad Thrawn is one of the first characters that appeared in an expanded universe book uh, that actually made the jump to um, visual media. So that tells you exactly how good Timothy Zahn's writing. He's, he is one of my favorite authors of all time. There isn't a book that he's read or, or written that I have not liked. So that would be fascinating to, to invite him over and just talk to him about world building and his sci-fi writing. And then the third person I'm going to throw in there, because I have, I have a massive appreciation for voice actors, I think I'd invite Tara Strong. Uh, she's probably best known as the voice of um, Raven on Teen Titans Go, but she's done so much voice acting over the years. Um, Canadian. Uh, more roles than you could possibly shake a stick at, but voice actors, like singers, probably have to have a very strong voice regimen and for as long as tara strong's career has been you know she comes in and she doesn't sound like tara strong she sounds like the character there are some voice actors who come in and they sound like themselves no matter what tara strong comes in and embodies the character in her voice and that is a a, a wonderful talent i don't think voice actors get enough credit that the, that they should yeah, I think they're incredible. As you said, there, there are certain ones that stick with you, especially especially in the video game world, um, because that's often, you know, with a film or a TV show or, you know, animated show, you, you, the action on TV. But with a video game, your connection is to that character and the voice. And and I, I was saying to somebody, uh, and the name of the person is awful, I'm going to forget the name, but it's guy who does Gears of War, Marcus Phoenix, sorry, yeah, and... He does, I think he does a couple of like animated cartoons. So he's done like Futurama. But anyway, I was in a Comic-Con and I was walking around and I think someone said, oh, do the Gears of War voice, do the Gears of War. And I wasn't even watching the, the panel. 
but he did it. He comes over the loudspeaker and you kind of just stop still because you hear that character that you've grown attached to playing a game or you've only ever heard of that game coming out of the loudspeakers. And they're just so iconic. Is it Peter Cullen as well for Optimus Prime? Um, oh, absolutely. You hear that like, voice yeah. and you stop still as well. Well, when you think about, I mean, and it's John DiMaggio, by the way, who, who, that's it. Marcus yes, Phoenix. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But, but when you take a look at some of the, the, the other roles that he's played, um, like the character of Lobo in Justice League War World, mm. um, like, as James Gordon in Batman, the doom that came to Gotham, John DiMaggio is another one of those actors who will sit there and tailor their voice to the role as opposed to, as opposed to come in and just voice it, you know, whether it's clean or gruff, right. It's they, they become the role yeah. and it's, it's not just their voice in the moment. Um, you know, and that's the thing when you have someone who can jump into multiple iterations of a franchise and be able to take on different roles um it's it's fascinating like he, aside from you know um uh, what was the one i mentioned there uh batman the doom that came to gotham aside from being james gordon in that one um you know he was in the long halloween part two as the mad hatter he was in um justice league dark apocalypse war as the voice of trigon and as king shark like being there you go being able to do different voices yeah. in the same movie yeah. and you don't know right that's where actors like john dimaggio and tara strong shine because they are five tool players if you will you know they're not just one trick ponies they're not just one voice they are they are the voice that's needed not the voice that you need yeah and it's purely everything is through the voice because obviously you're not seeing them so they're not acting they're not doing the physical physicality of it so everything has to come through that voice so yeah no no really good shout there really good shout yeah so i think that finishes all the the questions or the grilling i've got for you uh, for, the, for this <laughs> evening no thank you because as i said it's it's a real eclectic mix of people some i wasn't expecting and yeah, the food as well. Yeah, you had me, especially at the main course. So it was the the strip steak, wasn't it? Strip loin steak. Yeah, I'm still strip thinking loin steak. Yeah. I could have been dreaming of that tonight. So thank you very much, Jason, for coming on. Um, I hope you had a good time. Do you want to? Oh, um... Absolutely, my pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. Do you want to just shout out your pods again and where people can find you or any socials? All right. So if you're looking for it's not that bad on social media, you can find us at not that Badcast. If you're looking for There Can Only Be One, you can find us on various social media sites at Only One Cast, but you can find all of our shows and reach out and contact us at notthatbadcast.com. Uh, you'll see the It's Not That Bad episodes, There Can Only Be One, and our uh, special Monday show, Keep Watch Pass, that is on the It's Not That Bad channel. You'll be able to find that there as well, and you'll be able to you know find our coming soon page and see some of the movies that we are preparing to talk about. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, so do go do go check all that out if you aren't already. For me, you can get me at castingviewspod at gmail.com or just at castingviews anywhere on social media. If you fancy doing one of these, I'm looking to do one of these each month. Just drop me a line there or contact me on social media. And until next time, yep, this has been Casting Views. See you soon. Two, three, four. If I want your opinion, I will give it to you.
Come on, take what we've got, cause you need it. Don't make us get a spark and go. 